I created this cheesy Don Beebe drop like two years ago and have been kind of embarrassed to use it ever since, but I feel like it has to come out in the show today. If there was ever a time to use the Don Beebe drop, now is the time. Don Beebe. Don Beebe. Don Beebe caught him from behind. Don Beebe. Don Beebe caught him from behind. No, there's no drills for that. That's something that's your character. Don Beebe. Don Beebe. Come on, no, no. I think most people know what you're referring to. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football with the largest bracket. And we welcome you to podcast number 321. That is season 16, episode 21, the podcast for November 21 of 2022. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com, who is certainly glad he doesn't have to do a top 25 ballot this week. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation at D3Football.com. And Pat, I'm not sure that people have seen a podcast quite like this one now that we're in the first round of the playoffs. Certainly have not seen a defense like this podcast. Certainly have not been offended like you have on this podcast. This podcast sponsored by the hosts of Stag Bowl 49. We've been talking about how easy it is to get to the Annapolis area whether it is uh, flying into BWI, driving down 95, coming into Washington, D.C., and driving up, taking Amtrak to Baltimore, but wanted to let people know that it is uh, time to get your tickets. There's a link to buy tickets available in the show notes. We'll put it out on Twitter. Thankfully, this is not a Ticketmaster event, so your ticket price of $15 for adults or $10 for seniors, students, and, uh, and children it comes with a service fee that is less than the price of your morning coffee, and you don't have to fight all the Taylor Swift traffic in order to get your seat. Great news for all the Swifties out there. Yes, if you didn't get tickets to see Taylor Swift, come to Stag Bowl 49, and you'll have clearly the same amount of a good time. Yes, Stag Bowl 49 coming up in a mere four weekends. Four weekends to go yeah. until we're in Annapolis covering Stag Bowl 49. Under the lights on Friday, December 16th. Very much looking forward to that game. And again, if Stag Bowl is going to be the finale of what continues to be a phenomenal season, you don't want to miss it. And my goodness, when we talked about whether this year's playoffs could live up to the regular season we had, I feel like we just got a resounding yes on Saturday, right? Just at a glance, right? Trinity game coming down to the final two minutes. Aurora knocking off Whitewater. Bethel going on the road and winning. Randolph-Macon holding Cortland scoreless in the second half and more. Like, this first round had a whole lot to offer. It did, and I mean, it's almost like just getting good games and good game results isn't enough anymore in the first round. We got a handful of games that had some snow falling, snow on the field in places, which just amps up the the whole atmosphere. Really, really exciting first round on Saturday, Pat. Oh, the weather outside, occasionally frightful. And so were the results for the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, right? The first time 
since 2002 that we have not had a WIAC team in the second round of this postseason, and that is because Aurora, coached by Don Beebe, went to UW-Whitewater and won 33-28, and Wartburg defeated UW-Lacrosse by the score of 14-6. Maybe they were the most shocking results of the afternoon, certainly the first one. The first one, yeah, and I, you know, the that game started at a time when we were watching some other close games. Springfield Endicott was one, Randolph Macon Cortland was another, and you're like, yeah, you will check in with Aurora and Whitewater. You think Aurora, yeah, they've got offense, they're going to score some points. That game pops up on the blitz. I didn't have it on on any of my screens initially. It pops up on the bracket blitz, and snow is on the ground, snow is falling. Aurora is in the Stormtrooper White Road Unis. You can barely see them on the field and they're winning seven to zero in the first quarter. You're like, all right, maybe this, this could be something that we need to follow for the rest of the afternoon. Just a little bit behind the curtain here. Uh, we were divvying up who was going to be updating which games on the scoreboard yesterday. And I was like, I got to give Greg all of the interesting games so that we can talk about them on the podcast. And I can give the rest of the team all of the blowouts, all of the top seeds against bottom seeds. This was the one game that the rest of the staff got that was, in fact, a game that was worth following in minute detail. It was, and here we go again with Aurora, right? They In 2019, we sort of learned a little bit about Aurora and their ability to compete at the tippy-top of the national level when they had a really exciting game in 2019 against St. John's. Then they went back in 2021 to play St. John's in the first week of the season, nearly beat St. John's again. So they have played in these games on the road in these in these atmospheres that you get at Clemens Stadium and you get at, at Perkins Stadium, undeterred by any of it. And this time Aurora made one or two more plays than Whitewater did and got the win. Let's hear a little bit more from Aurora head coach Don Beebe. And I have to get out a special thanks to Parker Olson of the UW-Whitewater campus newspaper, The Royal Purple, for sharing this audio with us. Let's just say when the selection show came on um, and Whitewater pop, popped up, uh, the, the, the room erupted. Um, and I knew then that we had the right mindset and I personally, in my mind, you know, people always kind of asking me, who do you want to play? And I said, I would like to play Whitewater or Mount Union. Why? Because they are the, they're the pinnacle of D3 football. And if you're going to make a statement and you want to be that team, listen, we want to be Whitewater. I mean, let's not, I mean, they're, they are the, the program of D3 football. And, and who better to play in the first round? Um, if we would have gotten somebody else and won that game uh, today, without saying any other team, I mean anybody other than Whitewater or Mount Union, it would have been a great win in AU history, no question about it. We've never won a playoff game, ever, <laughs> until today, okay? Um, but to do it against the pinnacle, the best, listen, I'm a David and Goliath kind of guy. My whole life has been David and Goliath, okay? And I want to coach guys just like these three here in this whole team that have that same mentality. McGreg, you noted they've already played St. John's, they've played North Central, but uh, Mount Union and Whitewater, obviously for anybody who paid attention to Division Three football from you know, 2005 to 2018, tw- 2019, those were the uh, the mountains you had to climb. That was it. And that's, you know, if you're, if you're a team like Aurora out of the, 
NACC, which has never won a playoff game before, to to look at those teams and be like, that's the team that I want. And then when you get it and your your team goes crazy in the in the meeting room, um, and then you go pay it off, not just with a, a competitive game and the moral victory kind of thing, but you actually go into Perkins Stadium and win. That's so hard to do. Aurora has done it, and they're going to play next weekend for a spot in a in a regional final. Right. Who would have thought that this would be the year that Aurora went and got that W, considering that they had what seemed like th- their all-time quarterback in previous couple of years and could not quite get over that hump? What you're seeing here is that it's not just talent of Gavin Zimbelman that, that gets him to that level. It's really good coaching, really good schemes. A lot of big plays from their offense on Saturday against the Whitewater defense that, you know, is is big and fast and strong and generally doesn't give up a ton of big plays. They schemed some things open and got some big plays. Uh, Cam Moore, we're going to hear about a little bit more later. Big game for him. Aurora, you know, they go, they score 33 against Whitewater. That's a big number and big game and really kudos to Don Beebe and his staff for getting that team ready to play that game in just one week. You can learn a lot more about Don Beebe's background, you know, what he went through before becoming a Division Three head coach by going back to podcast number 235. That is when we had an extended sit down with Don Beebe. So congratulations to Aurora. They will be heading to Alma Aurora and Alma, that's your second round Division Three football playoff matchup, which is a little bit mind-blowing, I got to admit. I haven't checked the submitted brackets in the bracket challenge, but I'm going to guess that is not a popular or a very, a very frequent uh, second round pick. I'm sure you're probably right on that regard. Also, just in this top left bracket, Wartburg and UW Lacrosse, I think we knew, right, we knew this would be a good game. We expected, I think I even wrote in the end of my chatter for surprises and disappointments is like, you know, whoever wins this game is probably my favorite, could be my favorite to win the whole bracket. Now, I did not really hedge my bets very well. I picked UW Lacrosse to win this game by a narrow margin, and instead Wartburg turned around and took it to him. They really did. They got some timely turnovers out of Wisconsin Lacrosse, a big fumble early in the game, a couple of big interceptions Later on, just enough offense from Wartburg. They did enough to really win the field position game throughout most of the day, particularly in the first half. I'm watching the game, and I'm seeing Wisconsin lacrosse consistently starting inside their 10- and 20-yard line. Really long fields all day for Wisconsin lacrosse. And against Wartburg's defense, we know, is very good. They've been great all year. Hard to drive the length of the field against them. Wisconsin lacrosse could not do it. Just one touchdown on the afternoon for lacrosse. Wartburg, just enough offense to get the 14 to six win. We will talk even more about this game coming up in a few minutes. When we chat with Chris winter, the head coach of the Wartburg Knights, he talks about the punter. He talks about the defense and uh, you will get to hear more of that. It is not just five minutes because this is the playoffs and there's a little bit more to cover than we can really do in five minutes. And also, you're going to hear voices from around the bracket. Typically, we have been able to, you know, make use of the post-game news conferences that schools post on YouTube, on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, record videos of. 
and we made copious use of that today. And I, again, should just thank Parker Olson at uh, the Royal Purple for getting audio from UW-Whitewater. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. And it's time for game balls. And in a first round full of the great performances that we've talked about, I'm going to single out Aurora wide receiver Cameron Moore. Moore would tell you that it doesn't really matter who. Yeah, you know what? I'll let him tell it. We've been working on it all year long, just the route running, the timing of the quarterback, Swanee. And I think that it's just all the receivers on our team are a threat. So they don't know who's going to get the touchdown. They don't know who's going to come open. So everybody running, everybody's alert. And I think that's why we have so much success because it really doesn't matter who gets a touchdown for us. It happened to be me today, Trey, you had to get in there. But I mean, it's just about the win. We've been working on it all year long, just the route running, the timing of the quarterback, Swanee. And I think that it's just all the receivers on our team are a threat. So they don't know who's going to get the touchdown. They don't know who's going to come open. So everybody running, everybody's alert. And I think that's why we have so much success because it really doesn't matter who gets a touchdown for us. It happened to be me today, Trey, you had to get in there. But I mean, it's just about the win. Moore had himself a day on Saturday in the snow up at Whitewater, catching seven passes for 190 yards and three touchdowns, two of them being touchdowns that put the Spartans back up by two scores after Whitewater had gotten back into the game. Season highs in all three of these categories for Moore. That's against a purple power, and Cameron Moore gets my game ball. In a game where yards and points were hard to come by, Wartburg's Hunter Clausen turned out 200 yards exactly and one touchdown on 31 carries in Wartburg's 14-6 victory over Wisconsin Lacrosse. On Wartburg's opening possession of the third quarter, Clausen found an opening through the right side of the Knights' offensive line and raced 57 yards for the game's longest play and what would be the game's final score. Clausen carried eight straight plays on Wartburg's final possession, converting two third downs, and rolling the last four minutes and seven seconds off the clock for anchoring Wartburg's offense in a game where offense was hard to come by, Hunter Clausen gets my game ball. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, joined by Chris Winter, head coach at Wartburg. Wartburg, one of the schools that provided one of the big surprises of the bracket, or at least helped knock out the WIAC in the first round of the playoffs. Coach, first off, congratulations. Welcome to the podcast. What Tell us a little bit about what that was like yesterday. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a fun day. We knew coming into this thing that lacrosse had an excellent football team, physical football team on both sides of the ball, um, do a great job stopping the run and obviously run the football very well with the Wisconsin League, you know, offensive player of the year with their running back. So, yeah, we knew we were going to be in for a fight. And obviously the conditions yesterday um, with the wind, the cold, you know, kind of turned it into a running football game. And so I think both teams had a chance to show off their strengths throughout the day. And it was a battle. And fortunately, you know, our uh, our offensive line, our running back, Hunter Claus, and we're able to make some key plays, that one big 50-plus yard run that Hunter busted off there in the second half to right. open things up was huge and really got us some momentum rolling there in the second half that we, we never really relinquished. So, yeah, it was, it was an excellent day, fun day. You know, anytime you get a big win like that and have a chance to do it at home in front of your home crowd, it's going to be a special one for your program. I have to ask because there was a, a name or two I didn't see in the box score. Was lacrosse missing one of those quarterbacks? They were, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I usually go by number here, so I, I'm, I'm not great with names, but numbers. Number two, certainly a huge part of their offense was missing yesterday, and 
I know that that was a big thing for them. You know, running the football has been their deal, and certainly their their running back number six has been been the man all year. But that quarterback has made a big difference too, especially in some of their short yardage situations where you can have that kind of dual threat, be able to run it, be able to throw some RPO type stuff off of it. And he he was he was a big key for them to be missing, and then that certainly helped our cause as well. All right, so tell us a little bit. I've been to Warburg a number of times. What's the crowd like in Waverly? What was it like on Saturday for that first round game? Yeah, yeah, we get it. We get a great crowd out here every week. We're really well supported, and playing at home has been a been a big thing for us. You know, we we really defend our home field well. I think the last time we were beat here in Wallace Newber Stadium was in 2018 in a conference game, and then the one before that would have been back to 2016. And I think I, I saw our SID put something out. It's like 50 and four over the since you know I think the last 10 to 15 years something like that. But anyway, it, it, we've been really played really well there. Um, you know, and we get a great crowd. And one of the things that was great yesterday, our our um, athletic department, our athletic director actually, for the guys on our team that were not able to be part of our 58 man squad, basically said he would pay for a ticket for all those guys to be able to come out to the game and watch. So we had a nice uh, extra student section with about 75 80 players up there in in the stands cranking it up too so it was awesome it was an awesome atmosphere even though it was cold and windy and everything else we still had a good turnout and i think that played a big role in our success as well going back to the start of the season you guys started out you know by uh holding monmouth essentially scoreless only touchdown came after midnight after a, a long delay and then shut out uw stout and not only that, you know, shut out four other opponents over the course of the season. Tell us a little bit about the guys on that defense who are getting that job done for you. So our defense, it really starts up front. I've, I've been saying this since we uh, since we started the season. I told everybody that our front seven was going to be about as good as we've had in a while. And that's saying something. We've had some really good uh, defense here at Warburg back in the Coach Willis days. I mean, that was kind of what we hung our hat on for a long time. And uh, so the guys up front. It really, it's really been where it started. Um, guys like Jordan Downing, um, you know, uh, Riley Conradi, both those guys are first-team all-conference players for us on our D-line. Uh, Freddie Hush was a second-team all-conference performer, and Donovan Juarez, uh, D-tackle for us, uh, who sh- I think should have been an all-conference performer, but you can't have them all. So, you know, those guys have been great. And then at our linebacker level, uh, you know, you mentioned guys missing yesterday, Antonio Santion who's been kind of a, a long-standing player for us on our defense. He's a three-time first-team all-conference. Mike was not able to play yesterday. So uh, Owen Grover, uh, number 44 out there, he was the first-team all He was the defensive player of the year in our league uh, this year. Filled in at the Mike spot, and, man, he's he is awesome. And then Nate Links, first-team all-conference linebacker for us as well on the outside. And so, yeah, that that whole front seven, I mean, it's it's been impressive all year long. And then, actually, the, the fill-in – when Antonio didn't play, we had to play, we played Preston Rochford at the outside linebacker spot in Owen's normal spot, and he had 12 tackles yesterday. So, I mean, well, we're just really blessed with some guys up front that have been dominating for us. It's been hard to run the, the ball on our defense, and when you can make a team one-dimensional, it really opens up some opportunity for you to put some speed on the field, rush the passer, change up coverages, because you know you can, you can handle the run game with those guys up front. And that's been a big part of our success all year, and that's what we've been hanging our hat on for sure. I was going to ask you, so like when you lose a middle linebacker, like were you bringing you were bringing someone in from strong side or whatever, and then bringing a safety down because like Rochford is a safety, right? Or well, generally? so there's two there's two Rochfords. So we've got Parker oh, okay. Rochford is the yeah. safety that's been a stud for us all year long, 
All right. His brother, his brother Preston, has really been kind of a special teams guru for us throughout the year and has been our backup will uh, will weak side linebacker into the boundary. And so we moved Owen from that weak side linebacker to Mike and then bumped Preston down to that area, you know, let him play that will spot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, wherever we put Owen Grover, I think, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are going to know about this guy moving forward. He's, he's a fourth year senior right now who's planning to come back for a fifth year with that, with that COVID opportunity. And I think next year there's gonna be a lot of people talking about this kid because he's special, uh, both on and off the field. Um, you know, he's a 4.0 biology student going to go on and be a doctor and he can play any position on the field. He actually punted for us yesterday too. I, I don't know if anyone saw the stats on that, but, a number of those punts that rolled down inside the 10 were off his foot. And so he also lined up a tight end in our, in our, uh, we call our Haas package, our, our goal line short yardage sure. package. And he just does everything. And so we asked him to move to the mic, you know, about a week ago when Antonio had his injury and he picked it right up. And I think he had 10 tackles yesterday. And I think a lot of people from lacrosse figured out who he was fast. So, you know, <laughs> we've been really fortunate, like I said, with this front and, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with, there is some great senior leadership there. Uh, a number of those guys are fourth and fifth year type of guys right now. And, and uh, that's been big for our defense for sure. Spinning forward ahead a little bit. We're having this conversation middle of the afternoon on Sunday. I don't know how far you are into St. John's prep, but you know, St. John's has struggled a little bit with the running game this year. Their key guy hasn't been healthy, that sort of thing. And I would think that, uh, you know, based on what you described and how your team played on Saturday against UW lacrosse, would have to think that, uh, you know, a lot of those principles probably apply in the second round game as well. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It's, it's always goes back to trying to help make a team one dimensional. I think if you can do that, that's going to give you a lot of chance to be successful on defense. Now, these guys, I mean, I, again, I have not gotten too far. We just got the film this morning. I've been working on it, but I know they, they've been passing the ball really well. They've got a talented quarterback who transferred in there. It looked like, and uh, yep. you know, I, that's kind of, you know, they, they seem to have find those quarterbacks and, have guys that can make plays. And, and we know uh, very well about the, the history of that program. And it's a proud program. It's it's excellent. And going up there is not going to be any easy uh, task. And so we know what, what's in front of us right now. And I think, like I said, their offense has been solid. And it looks like their defense is as stout as could be. I mean, they, they're really stopping the run well, physical up front, got a nice D line. And like I said, we're still just getting to know them a little bit. But yeah. We, we know we got our hands full, you know, come Saturday, uh, going up to Collegeville for sure. All right. So it's a strange week, right? This week has Thanksgiving. What does prep look like? How is it different than a normal game week? Yeah. Yeah. So fortunately we've been through this a little bit before. This is my first time as a head coach going through this, but I've seen coach Willis navigate this before. And so at Warburg, our kids are actually in class all the way up, you know, into like Wednesday afternoon, which is helpful when it comes Ooh. to, when it comes to food service and all the things that go on, I know a lot of schools have the whole week off. And so then you're scrambling to figure out how True. we can feed these guys, how we can have yeah. a schedule. So I know it's not as cool for the students, but it's very helpful no. for the head football coach. There you um, go. So, I was going to so, say, as a student, I was pretty sure, um, and this is, you know, umpteen years ago, but in order to get a car into a car and go wherever I wanted to go for Thanksgiving, I was bailing out about two o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. I don't right. know whoever went to class on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure the class would be a little sparsely attended there, you know, as you get into the middle of the week. But, uh, but like I said, it definitely helps out the head football coach in terms of ma mapping out a week here. The first three days will be pretty normal to, to a normal week for our guys. And then when we hit Thursday, Typically in the past, we've usually had a, a morning practice on Thanksgiving, gotten that done, and then allowed you know guys that are close enough to go home to go be, be with their families for Thanksgiving. And 
guys that aren't, you know, try to arrange where they can go with some of our team, their teammates and get a chance to still have a Thanksgiving meal uh, that's home cooked and with some people. And uh, so that's something we've, we've got a really tight knit team. And I don't think that's going to be an issue for us at all. Um, And so then on Friday, we'll come back and get on a bus and start traveling up North and still kind of mapping out exactly where we want to hold our uh, kind of our Friday, you know, walkthrough type of practice, whether that'd be right there at, at St. John's, we'll, we'll do it on the way up there. And then, you know, the NCAA does a lot for us in terms of helping arrange or, you know, working through arranging travel hotels. So that, that's been helpful here too. And we'll have a meeting tomorrow with them to kind of iron out some of those details and get that, that ready to go. And like I said, that'll be the, the plan for the week. And then come Saturday, try and get them rolling and crank it up up there in front of a, a great crowd. I'm sure. You know, this is a big freaking deal, right? Yeah. Take knocking off a top 10 team. You guys had maybe not the most favorable matchup in the first round. How do the players take it? Do the players understand? And then, you know, how do you get them then refocused on going ahead and doing that for a second time in a row? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think just even starting with last Sunday, the guys the guys knew, you know, they knew what we were going into. And I think they, you know, they were initially, I think when you see that, the pairing come out, you're like, wow, okay. You know, you go 10-0 and 0 and do what you did. And this is kind of the draw you get. But at the same time, um, I think they also realized it was a great opportunity you bring in a team um, that's you know one of the top teams in the country. They've got to come to your home stadium, play on the road, and get a chance to take a shot and really make make a statement for your program and really for your conference. I, I think that was the thing for us, too. We want to do a great job of representing the American Rivers Conference. I think that has a, a major impact on the, on the future pairings and things that happen in the uh, playoffs as well because you, you got to be able to prove yourself. And so – like I said, initially there was a little bit of that, you know, okay, is this really the way it should have gone? But then it was like, yeah, hey, this is perfect. This is set up perfectly for us to have a chance to do something special. And anytime you play in the playoffs, it, it you know, obviously there's rankings and everything else out there, but whoever you play is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a great football game. And in the end, we, we were excited to have a chance to do it at home. So I, I think the guys realized that it was a big win for our program, but it was also not, uh, you know, the, the goal at the beginning of the year was not to just win the championship and, win one playoff game and stop there. Yeah, I, I think our guys, they'll be ready to go again this week. But yeah, like you said, there is a little bit of a high when you have that type of win. And But I think it also gives you confidence moving forward. And we're excited to go up to St. John's and uh, and see what, what we're about again. We've talked a little bit about Warburg's defense here, but uh, really interesting to hear. And it's something I didn't notice watching the game. Owen Grover changing positions, just casually switching positions and doing uh, an outstanding job against a top 10 team, um, really Owen Grover. We've talked about Owen Grover a couple of times this season. I think maybe he's got a game ball at some point earlier this season, but really a standout on a team full of defensive standouts. I was just glad to get a clarification as to how many Rochfords there were. Uh, I know that uh, Parker, I believe, was on our uh, D3football.com team of the week at some point in midseason. So to know that there's more than one Rochford, I'm just going to keep that in my files. Who knows what the four by four is for in the four. We're just going to go bracket by bracket and kind of continue with this top left bracket, Greg. And we've already talked about half of the St. John's bracket, but we have not talked about St. John's. The Johnnies, as expected, overwhelmed Northwestern, advancing to the second round by a score of 49 to zero. Aaron Severson threw four touchdown passes in the win, while the Johnny defense allowed just six rushing yards to the champions of the UMAC. Easy win, really, for St. John's to get into the second round, get some of their starters some rest headed into next week's game because Johnny's have been tested a bit this year. And, you know, also, 
I think they're going to need to somehow get some running game this upcoming week against Wartburg. You know, uh, Henry Trost, who was their workhorse running back, has been injured, got hurt again in the first series against Bethel, got banged pretty good on his knee. Basically, my understanding is that he got the entire week off from practice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're going to need him against Wartburg, and if they manage to advance, they'll need him going forward. That's a tough, tough assignment to run on Wartburg. Central had a little bit of success throwing on Wartburg, so maybe uh, maybe that's a good matchup for St. John's. But, yeah, you're going to want to be able to run a little bit and to wear that Wartburg defense out a little bit. Pat, just because one St. John isn't enough in the St. John's bracket, we're going to talk about freshman quarterback Carter St. John, who threw two second-half touchdowns as the Alma Scots pulled away from Mount St. Joseph in a 41-21 to win. This game was looking like the shootout that our Quick Hits team predicted and went into halftime with a score tied 21-21. to Alma's defense played an excellent second half, though. They shut out the Lions, allowing just 41 yards of offense through that second half. Cornell Beecham Jr. did rush for 149 yards for Mount St. Joseph, but was held out of the end zone on the afternoon. Alma advancing to the second round. Yeah, I guess we'll find out over the next couple of weeks if this is the St. John's bracket or the Carter St. John's bracket. But, you know, after the game, all fun and laughs for Alma coach Jason Couch. Once he got to warm up a little bit, we asked him on our Bracket Blitz show about still wearing the kilt that he wears as coach of the Scots on the sidelines now that we're playing games in mid-November. I'm not going to lie, it was pretty cold. (laughs) I thought about giving you a a Scotsman line of, you know, no, you don't feel it, but... It was cold, um, but I will, no way, I'm wearing it out there, and uh, yeah, the kneecaps got a little brisk and thighs, but uh, it's worth it, um, and I will absolutely, I don't care what the weather is, uh, we're on bulky field, I will be wearing the kilt. Yeah, man, I cannot, uh, I cannot, I can't even really, I can't, I can't. No, but when your team is 11-0, and 0, you can't stop doing it. Like you have to keep going with that, right? Yeah, can't stop, won't stop. Knees knocking, frozen, something. We'll workshop that. We'll come back with something better in post. So just a quick look ahead at that uh, other next game. We talked a little bit about St. John's and Warburg. Alma and Aurora. I think I'm looking at that being another shootout. I I think most of us predicted shootout, as you said, for Alma, Mount St. Joe. Um, you now I feel like uh, it'd be a very interesting matchup and probably a pretty fun game fun game between a couple of fun teams yeah we'll see could get a little pointsy definitely we'll see how the weather is up there it was brutally windy uh for the game at alma this weekend uh that's the kind of wind that can really knock down a pair of prolific passing offenses so we're gonna have to watch the forecast for that one but should be a really entertaining game moving on to the bottom left a bracket in which Mount Union, Utica, Randolph-Macon, and Delaware Valley advanced. Start with Utica, right? Utica, obviously the team that we didn't think necessarily should have even been in the field. None of our seven people picked them to win. What did they do? They won, right? Uh, they won by the score of 17-10. to 10. Great defensive performance. And let's hear a little bit about this game from Blaze Fagiano. He kind of echoes something that Coach Winter said in talking about the American Rivers Conference and how they were playing for conference pride, first of all. I think at the end of the day, what was most important for us is these guys play for each other. Uh, and they're really proud Empire 8 guys. Like We represented the Empire 8 today. 
You know, and that's how I looked at it. You know, all week I, I build up. Each week I'll do that. You know, non-league. This is Empire Eight versus uh, Centennial. You know, and, um, and obviously they're a very good football team. And like sometimes you just have to find a way to win. Uh, I don't know if we've won a game quite like this this year. You know, way that we found a way. And um, and I mean they had great plays on special teams, and they had great plays. And at the end of the day, you know, I think in a game like this you just have to have a few more, just a few more plays than than your opponent. But a lot of credit to. The coaches done a great job here and a great Susquehanna team. I think you leverage whatever you can as motivation, right? Whether playing for conference pride, playing chip on your shoulder, nobody thought we should be here, whatever it is. Uh, you know, coaches are going to latch on to any of those things and use them as motivators for their team. Utica played a great game defensively against Susquehanna, and they have advanced, won their first uh, 1-0 all time in the Division Three playoffs for the Utica Pioneers. Utica definitely had Michael Roosh fooled. That's the quarterback for Susquehanna. I don't know, maybe even got in his head a little bit. The first of Jamel Smith's three interceptions was a pretty amazing play. That's on a well-thrown ball. Picked off that pass in the end zone late in the second quarter. Uh, Fagiano talks here about the defensive game plan against the Riverhawks. Try to take away his first read, you know, get him to the second read. Um, yeah, that was a big debate. Are we going to blitz him and not blitz him? A lot of times we were only rushing with three or four, um, you know, and I think it really worked. And so, yeah, credit to Coach McClendon, a first-year defense coordinator for us, and a uh, you know, great addition to our program in many ways. And and uh, we kind of just stick to the game plan. You know, we really stuck to the game plan. I think at times we did blitz, you know what I mean, but uh, you know, not not as much as maybe in other weeks, um, you know. And then see, you know, see if they were to be patient enough with the run game. The other close game in this bracket, Greg. Randolph-Macon and Cortland, I think a lot of people thought very highly of Cortland coming into this bracket, and through halftime, it looked like a uh, pretty darn amazing game. It did. Zach Boys and Cortland's offense had a big first half at Randolph-Macon. Boys threw three touchdowns, and Jaden Alfano St. John ran in another score as the Red Dragons held a 28-21 to halftime lead. But like we saw in the Alma-Mount St. Joseph game, Randolph-Macon's defense answered the bell in the second half. They intercepted boys twice. They pitched the second half shutout, and the Yellow Jackets came from behind to win 35-28. to The Yellow Jacket defense limited Cortland's rushing offense to just 67 yards. That's well below their over 200-yard-per-game average. They sacked boys six times, and as he's done all year, uh, Randolph-Macon quarterback Drew Campanelli didn't throw a lot, but when he did, he was very effective. 10 to 15 passing, 256 yards, and three touchdowns for the Randolph-Macon quarterback. Campanelli did exit this game after the third quarter, so we're not sure what his status is for the second round. i got to be honest with you, Greg. When we realized that Campanelli had gone out of the game, I didn't think that uh, Randolph-Macon really had a snowball's chance in Claremont, California, of uh, coming away with that W. He left the game and during the sequence where they scored their final touchdown. So they went ahead and yeah. then it was sort of on the defense to limit Cortland, the rest of the, for the entire fourth quarter, which they did. But, you know, they talked about on the broadcast, uh, the, the depth that Randolph Macon's quarterback room has. So they're, they've got some different options there with the backup quarterback that finished off the game. Ely is a big power running guy that they can do a lot of wildcat stuff with. So, and that's how they scored their final touchdown, too, was with him taking the direct Yeah, stand. so they're going to have some options and what to do if Campanelli can't go. Uh, big, big challenge next week, though, for whoever is going to step in if Campanelli can't go. 
Well, because they're going up to Delaware Valley. They are. Well, they are going to face Delaware Valley as the Aggies knocked off Gallaudet 59-0. to Five of Gallaudet's first six offensive plays went for negative yards. The sixth one went for no gain against the Aggies' run defense. And that's just how that went all afternoon for, for Gallaudet. Anthony Nobile led the way for the Aggies with seven tackles. Four of those were tackles for loss. Louis Berrios, the fourth, rushed for two touchdowns, as did Jay White, both of those contributing to the seven total rushing touchdowns for Delaware Valley on the day. And then we're going to talk about this in a second, too. But, you know, three option teams in the bracket, two of them draw, you know, two of the top teams in Division Three, uh, especially in Delaware Valley. You know, these are guys who are experienced, they're strong, and they're fast up front, and it's just really difficult for all but the most accomplished option offenses to do something against teams like that. It is, and we see this pretty frequently with teams that pile up tons and tons of rushing yards with option offenses. As soon as they hit an elite defense, the offense goes, the faucet is just off, and you wind up with a game where you have a handful of first downs and under 100 yards of offense. And that's exactly what happened to Salisbury when they went to Mount Union. This is not a Salisbury team that is quite on the level of some of the Salisbury teams that have advanced to the quarterfinals or had a little bit of success in the playoff bracket. Uh, these Seagulls, just 65 yards, three first downs against the Mount Union defense. And on the other side, big day for Braxton Plunk. He was 35 of 49 passing with five TDs. Wayne Ruby... Someone we talked about, we weren't quite sure what his status would be. Heard he got hurt in the post-game celebration after the win against Baldwin-Wallace. Yeah, he caught 12 passes for 159 yards and four touchdowns, so I'm guessing he's probably okay. Yeah, if there was, I think if there was any question about whether or not Wayne Ruby could go, they probably would have been okay to leave him out this week. But that he was in there long enough to catch 12 balls and four touchdowns uh, lets me know that Wayne Ruby's doing okay. And if you're interested in that Wayne Ruby touchdown watch, that is 24 receiving touchdowns for Ruby this season. Remember the Division Three record, and really the all-divisions record, is held by Andrew Kaminsky, recently of North Central, who caught 31 touchdown passes for the Cardinals in that 2019 season in which the North Central Cardinals won the Division Three Football National Championship. Top right bracket. Three blowouts, one road win. So we'll start with that one where uh, Springfield goes to Endicott, comes away winners by a 17-14 score. Right, So the pride looked pretty good in recent weeks, and I wasn't convinced really that Endicott had played anybody that was as good as Springfield this year. So that's why I felt pretty comfortable picking the pride in our quick hits this week. I know I didn't do very well in quick hits this week, but who did really, let's be honest. Uh, final score was close, but this was a 10-point game for some time. Endicott had to burn a lot of clock in the fourth quarter just to score a touchdown to cut it to three, and there was no way that they had enough time to come back and do it again, even if they recovered the onside kick. Springfield also did this by getting out in front early, and the Pride's first touchdown was set up by a 50-yard pass from Armando Torres to Noah Wagonblast. We talked about him a few weeks ago. First time I talked about a Springfield uh, wide receiver on the podcast, I'm pretty sure, and here we're talking about him again. Here's Coach Mike Sarasolo talking about that after the game. Made big plays all year long, and, and obviously Armando made a big uh, throw at that point, did a great job uh, executing the offense today as well. And uh, um, so that was uh, it was great to get uh, get a good start to things right there because uh, I think it makes it difficult for, 
for other teams because of our, our ball uh, control style of offense is that uh, then we can do some things that we want to do rather than things that we have to do. So, um, and we were able to do that throughout the entirety of the game. So, you know, you're seeing something here a little bit, something maybe a little bit different than you see from Salisbury and Gallaudet with this option offense is that they are mixing in a little more pass, uh, making it a little less predictable. Endicott, great season. You know, they get a home game in the playoffs, but uh, Springfield just a little bit too much in this one. And that's a that's a New England team moving on to the second round, which I know doesn't happen all the time. It was bracketed to be automatic this time, but yes, it doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, sometimes Springfield throws the ball. Sometimes they just Chris Sharp you to death, right? Um, this is a, a year in which uh, Springfield has a little bit of that extra dimension, and we'll see what they could do with that uh, next week up at Ithaca. We'll talk about that in a little bit, though. How about to this uh, Carnegie Mellon-DePaw game, right? I love to see it. DePaw gets the turnover on the opening kickoff, and they score, and they go up 7 nothing, right? But Carnegie Mellon ties it up. And then they take the lead after the next kickoff. DePaul returns that kick, but Ariane Hedge forces a fumble, and kicker Cole Hanna is there to recover the fumble. I loved it. So did Tartan's coach Ryan Larson. Here's what he had to say about Hanna on Saturday. Cole, Cole's awesome. I mean, uh, a side story on Cole. Most people may or may not know. Cole was a, you know, a walk-on at South Carolina. He never got to see one snap ever for his whole time there. And Cole has come here, and nothing was guaranteed to him, but he's just worked hard. Um, obviously, the league recognized him as, as the best kicker uh, in the league last week, which we're very proud of him. Uh, but, yeah, he's, just, he's had a couple big tackles this year, um, like really big tackles this year. Uh, he, he's a football player. He's not just a kicker. He's a football player. And um, we're really excited that he's here and a part of this, this team. Watch out for Cole Hanna, not only kicker, but fumble recoverer. And uh, tack or to boot. Doing it for all the college kickers out there. Also in this one, uh, Pat, big outing for Trey Vasilaitis for Carnegie Mellon. 29 carries, 167 yards, and two touchdowns. Carnegie Mellon, clearly a different offense when he's in the lineup and healthy. He's been playing for a few weeks, maybe getting back into uh, football game shape, whatever that looks like. He looked like he was back to his week one self this week, and the timing couldn't be better because... The Tartans are going to need all of their stars ready to go next weekend. That will be at North Central. How about Ithaca, Mass Dartmouth? That game started off not very well. Yeah, I thought if Mass Dartmouth was going to have a chance in this one, they were going to have to turn it into a shootout. But instead, they had critical errors early that really grounded themselves before they could get going. Mass Dartmouth fumbled the ball away to Ithaca on the second snap of the game. Ithaca quickly turned that into a touchdown. Then the Corsairs fumbled the ensuing kickoff, which the Bombers then scored off of again very quickly. And then on the second snap of their next possession, another fumble gives Ithaca another short field, sets up another Bombers touchdown. After all of that, Mass Dartmouth has committed three turnovers in their first four offensive snaps. They're down 21-0, to less than seven minutes into the game. Ithaca stretched that out to 42-0 to at halftime, and they cruised into the second round. I've blocked most of the details from this particular game I'm about to talk about from my memory, but uh, 1998, I'm broadcasting Catholic U games. Uh, we go up to play at Lycoming in the first round and you know, just basically going to get obliterated. We turn over the ball a bunch, and at one point, I say, as we're lining up to punt the ball inside our own red zone, I said, well, at least here we're going to get a chance to punt. No, punt got blocked. 
and a touchdown ensued. And Lyco went on to win, I don't know, like 45-7 to and go on to play in the Stag Bowl that year. I know what that feels like, and it is not fun. And then, Pat, over in Naperville, the top-ranked team in the nation, they took care of business as they have all year. They dominated Lake Forest 50-0 to with a punishing rushing game and a stifling defense. The Cardinals, they matched Mount Union by allowing just three first downs to go along with a program record 66 yards allowed. Ethan Greenfield, he did light work in this one, just 18 carries. For 131 yards and a score, Luke Lennon threw three touchdowns. He ran for two more as the Cardinals take their first step toward a third consecutive Stag Bowl appearance. So coming up next week in this bracket, we've got Carnegie Mellon finally making that trip to North Central that they started making 53 weeks earlier before positive COVID tests derailed them. And then we've got Springfield at Ithaca. Talk about Springfield at Ithaca first, just because I love, you know, a rematch of old Empire 8 foes and years in which Springfield had amazing teams, always went to Ithaca, and it seemed like Ithaca didn't mow the grass that week up at Butterfield Stadium, and that triple option offense never really got going. I don't think you're talking about mowing the grass during Thanksgiving week up in Western New York, but uh, I still think that uh, Ithaca's got the advantage at home. Frankly, you know, not too many teams play on grass anymore outside of you know Southern California. That's true. I don't know that we're going to see ankle high grass at Butterfield this week, but it is an interesting matchup. And Ithaca is going to have to switch gears from get, have, having prepared the last couple of weeks for air offenses with Cortland and UMass Dartmouth. Now they're going to switch gears and try and get prepared for Springfield's offense on a on a short week. And we'll see how that goes, the difference in styles that Ithaca sees. Springfield probably going to be a little more careful with the ball. So I wouldn't expect Ithaca to be able to short field their way to an early three score lead in this one. So we'll see if Springfield's run can continue. Should be an interesting game there. Carnegie Mellon at North Central. It's the rematch of the game that didn't happen last year in the tournament. Carnegie Mellon sort of famously has the longest active win streak, kind of because they didn't have to go play North Central. Uh, They're going to get their chance uh, this Saturday, and we'll see if they can push North Central in a way that nobody else has this year. Randolph making just one game behind Carnegie Mellon in active win streak, by the way. I guess if Carnegie Mellon had advanced on a no contest this year, then that would be tied. And what fun that would be. Moving on to this bottom right bracket where even though you know we had all of these top teams and a couple of amazing games, we still have Mary Harden Baylor handling Huntington pretty well. We have Linfield. And Pomona Pitzer, super close up until the fourth quarter, a punt blocked and everything changed. But uh, pretty good set of games down here in the bottom right, as probably we expected. It is. I'm going to start in Wheaton, where Bethel outlasts Wheaton 34 to 32. Bethel came right out of the gate. They established the run on an opening scoring drive of 11 plays, nine of which were Bryce Kunkel runs. And that gets Bethel on the board first. Then they get a quick three and out, and then it's David Giebley's turn. Giebley rips off a couple of big runs, sandwiched around a Jaron Rosti uh, completion, his first of the game. Bethel goes up 14-0 to very quickly in this game. I think he kind of stunned Wheaton a little bit. The Thunder, they did respond. Quarterback Will Bowers engineers a scoring drive that gets Wheaton back to 14-6, to but then, Pat, a missed extra point, huh. and Wheaton is chasing that point the entire game. Yep. 
and it winds up really costing them. In the second half, Bethel gets a pick six from Devin Williams to open the second half. That puts Wheaton back behind by two scores again. That mixed extra point really, really putting them in that in that two possession thing all all afternoon. Every time Wheaton comes back, they get answered by Bethel in the second half. Ultimately, the game comes down to a successful defense of a two point try by the Royals. And then on the last possession of the game, Jaron Rossi picks up a big second and nine with a run and ices the game for the Royals. Here's Jaron Rossi talking about that. I mean, it's just kind of playing through some stuff, shoulder pain and stuff, but uh, trainers did a good job getting me ready. And it's just AC joint sprained. Uh, it's yes. kind of been reoccurring the last two weeks, just re-injuring it. So it was good to get through a full four quarters. Um, that said, I mean, the conditions obviously were not good, but yet you guys moved the ball consistently all day. Did it affect anything you tried to do? I mean, not too much. There was there was a little bit. One of the strengths of, I'd say, my game is just the, the run game, being able to be a quarterback that runs the ball that can just schematically put teams at a disadvantage because of uh, it's just a numbers game. Usually, if you don't account for the quarterback, the defense is one up in a lot of situations. And so it's been difficult the last couple of weeks dealing with the injury because it's, I haven't been running the ball as much as I as I have in the past, but you saw in the fourth quarter there, it took a couple of chances of me running the ball because it's it's the season on the line. You got to pick up a first down, and the one at the end there picking up that 15 yard gain to, to pick up that third and long, we could just kneel it out. It was a big deal. Well, there you go. There's an injury report right from the man himself, right? So now we know Jaron Rosti, he's playing through a separated shoulder. Gotta keep him separated. Looks like he made it through this game, no worse for wear. He'll have a big challenge from another outstanding defensive line next week. I had heard separated shoulder, just not able to confirm it, which is why I didn't publish it anywhere. But that was what went into my prediction of Wheaton winning that game. I just did not see Rosti playing with a separated shoulder a great performance and really a gutty performance, right? I mean, Bethel needs this guy, this guy. We talked about it with Steve Johnson back in podcast 308, where he talked about Rossi and a bunch of other guys coming back for their COVID year with this specifically in mind, right? Getting to the playoffs, advancing, and they need him. They got him. And I don't know if that's 80% of Rossi or 90% or 75%, but it was enough. It is Bethel moving on to the second round. They're going to go see Linfield next week. I got one final thought on Bethel Wheaton. Um, and it's, it's about the extra point. The extra point is really becoming kind of a sour spot in Wheaton's recent history. You know, they missed the, the missed the point after in the quarterfinal round against St. John's in 2019. They had the blocked point after in overtime against Trinity this uh, in week two. And then here against Bethel, this missed extra point on Saturday wasn't as dramatic. It happened early, but missing that PAT in the first quarter, that results in Wheaton trying to chase that point the rest of the game. Ultimately, Wheaton winds up going 0 for 2 on two-point tries, plus the missed extra point. That's three points there that they left on the field in a two-point game. And, you know, Wheaton's season ends again here with some what-ifs and what what could have happened. Taking it down to Texas for a little bit, we go to San Antonio where Trinity University wins a playoff game for the first time since 2002. A lot of things happening for the first time since 2002 in this particular bracket and uh, a game that is punctuated by Tucker Horn hitting Ryan Merrifield with a a 38-yard touchdown pass with about 2.17 to go 
in the ball game. Had about a step and a half of separation behind the defender, deep on the right side. This game had been such a defensive struggle. Had been scoreless for a long time. It just was a uh, kind of big dramatic play that you really needed and kind of punctuated the unsung game of this day when all the other things that we've talked about, this was a pretty amazing game also. Yeah, this was a game between top 10 teams and the weather impacted this game a lot too. You had a kind of a, a miserable rainy day down there in San Antonio, heavy winds again, really difficult for either offense to get anything going, going into the wind in this one. Trinity seemed to have really won the field position game pretty well in this one. Uh, Their defense hung on and hung on and hung on as we've seen them do this earlier this year against Birmingham Southern. We saw them do this same sort of thing against UMHB last year in the playoffs and gave themselves a chance in that game. So, you know, we know that this Trinity defense is really good. Tucker Horn, again, you know, finds the play at the end of the game to to get the, the game winning points. So Trinity moves on into the second round. They host Mary Harden Baylor. Mary Harden Baylor will be making the trip from Belton, Texas to San Antonio, kind of flipping the site of uh, last year's first round game. And Mary Harden Baylor, I don't know if they, fl- did they flip the switch on offense this week? Maybe they'd had offense like this all around and hadn't really paid a lot of attention to it because of some of the, the, uh, opponents in the rest of the American Southwest conference schedule, but nonetheless, 54 to nothing win against Huntington, Kyle King, 18 to 24 passing for 364 yards and four scores. KJ Miller, six catches for 145 yards and two touchdowns. Yeah. Really big, really big challenge for Trinity's defense next week with the UMHB offense, really, really clicking. Most impressive thing for me this week from UMHB defense pitching a shutout against Huntington's offense. I don't know that Huntington was going to have enough offense to keep up with them throughout this game in any case, but to put up a zero against an offense that has scored a lot of points this season, uh, that's a really encouraging sign for the Crusaders. And then the fourth game in this bracket, we alluded to it a few minutes ago, Linfield beating Pomona Pitzer final score of that game, 51 to 24, but you know, 27-24 going into the fourth quarter. Got a 50-yard field goal that kind of sparked things. They got a uh, third down sack, an interception, a blocked punt, and uh, it it all kind of fell apart for Pomona Pitzer. But until then, I mean, Skylar Noble was looking great. He was throwing the ball well, which I, I know we didn't really talk about his abilities along that line last week when we talked This was a game for a lot longer than one would expect traditionally for a Skyak champ going up to Linfield. Yeah, Pomona Pitzer led in this game in the second half, 21 to 20 at one point. And then, uh, like you said, it just kind of fell apart for the Sage Hens there as Linfield's defensive line really took control of the game in the second half. Uh, Skylar Noble, nowhere to run in the second half. And... Um, Linfield, we get the, they get a block punt for a touchdown. They get a couple of big plays out of their passing game, and you wind up with a blowout score in a game that was really not a blowout uh, until late. So next week, round two in this bracket, we've got UMHB at Trinity. We've got Bethel at Linfield. Bethel will be the best team that Linfield has played this year, I think, hands down. 
that'll be pretty interesting. And of course, Trinity and Mary Harden Baylor. I'm not sure that there's much else one can say about the level of play for this particular game. And I don't quite know what I'm going to do with my quick hits pick for that one. Is this going to be too much offense for Trinity to handle, basically? I think it's a fair question. I think we're going to get score predictions all over the place on that game. I think we'll get some low scoring, some high scoring. Um, I think the lower scoring, the better for Trinity, I think. I think if this game gets into the mid to high 20s or 30s, that's probably not where Trinity needs it to be to advance. I'm interested in how UMHB will get, or if they will get Brandon Jordan involved. He only had a couple of catches this week. Um, you know, we know he's uh, kind of a difference maker out there when he's involved. So now's the time for Kyle King to maybe break the glass and get Brandon Jordan back involved. In case of emergency, break glass. Throw jump ball to Brandon Jordan. Throw fade route, Brandon Jordan. Throw deep ball over the middle to Brandon Jordan. He's got a large catch radius, I think, is what they is what they call that, Pat. I've heard that phrase specifically about this guy, that's for sure. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week, pretty darn simple. It's zero. That's the combined number of points that the top seeds in three of the brackets gave up on Saturday. And, you know, if you'll permit me to swap in, say, Delaware Valley from the bottom left for Trinity in this geographically gerrymandered bottom right bracket, that's four top teams that pitched shutouts on Saturday. So, like, for all the great moments and great games on Saturday, there are a number of spots. Well, I mean, you could have played the game at Hampton, Sydney on one goalpost is what I'm saying. For a couple of them, yes. So, you know, we get... Plenty of good games, but you're always going to have the the three or four or five games that get a little out of hand in the first round. Pat, my stat of the week is two. Two Pool C teams that won games on Saturday. Bethel and Utica, those were the two at-large teams to win in round one, while Wheaton, Harden-Simmons, and UW-Lacrosse were all eliminated. Bethel and Utica, by the way, Two of the three road teams to win on Saturday, Springfield being the third. Five Pool C teams, four of them sent on the road. The one that was at home was hosting another Pool C team. These teams are, I think, generally the fours and fives in brackets, right? I didn't feel like Pool C got a whole heck of a lot of respect from the bracketing gods here in this particular tournament. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. That was the time of the podcast where we go to the mailbag. We're going to go to Twitter as long as there's a Twitter. If there's not a Twitter by the time you hear this podcast, I don't know what we'll do for the mailbag next week. But this is a tweet from at Brady underscore nickel underscore asking some. I know some guy already said it, just re bringing it up here too. But where does this Aurora win rank in all time first round upsets? Great question. One of the things about this time of year is we just kind of disassociate the top 25 with the bracket. People are confused enough by the fact that sometimes the seedings don't really match up with first round uh, pairings. Can you imagine if we put rankings on those brackets, people would be even more confounded. Uh, there's only been one time in the history of the five round playoffs that an eight seed has upset a one seed. That was in 2007. 
North Carolina Wesleyan won at WJ 35-34. That NC Wesleyan team was 8-2 and going into the playoffs, and they were unranked, but the losses were to Wesleyan Widener, so they were still getting a number of top 25 votes. WJ was number seven in the country. I'd have to think uh, in that five-round playoff system, that's the one win that really compares to what happened on Saturday. I can't really imagine a specific first round upset that was more unexpected than this one. And I opened up, you know, the reference material and looked through the first rounds going back to 1999. Uh, Then of course, in from 1999 to 2004, number one seeds got a buy in the first round. So a bigger upset probably wasn't even possible. The North Carolina Wesleyan at W and J that's the one that immediately came to my mind. I can't think of another one that is quite like this. You've got Aurora is a program that has not won a playoff game previously. They went into Perkins Stadium to knock off the WIAC champion with all of the championship pedigree that Whitewater has. Hard to find a similar result in the five-round era of the playoffs. Yeah, and that is a pretty similar result, right? So as we mentioned, it's the first playoff win for the Knack. When North Carolina Wesleyan won that game against WJ, it's now just one of six wins in the tournament by USA South teams, and a number of those were by Christopher Newport, who won a couple of games in the first few years that they had a football program, and now haven't been in the USA South for a handful of years. Let's put it that way. We'll take another question from Antoine Cuff at CuffyCakes08 asking, does Aurora have the giant killer formula and will other teams copy? I know what they all hear, what the they say about the NFL, right? That it's a copycat league. So we learned, if nothing else, how to beat Whitewater. We talked about this recently, too. It's like, how close was Whitewater to being six and four this season? Not that far. A couple of kicks, a couple of key fourth down plays here or there. And it's a completely different thing. But will other teams copy the formula that Aurora has built? I think a lot of this is frankly, Don Beebe is a guy with a name as a guy with a name who can really, I think, attract offensive players. And we talked about this with Don Beebe back in 235. The current players don't really know who Don Beebe was as a member of the NFL, but all of their parents do, or at least all of their parents who follow the NFL know who Don Beebe was. And Don Beebe has kind of put his whole thing into this, you know, this speed clinic that he was running before he got into coaching. I mean, if you can copy that, uh, be my guest. Best of luck to you. Yeah, it's difficult difficult to do. Difficult to pull NFL veteran players out of thin air to come coach your Division three football program. You know, there's definitely some, some brand appeal there for Don Beebe that just is inherent to Don Beebe himself. I think teams can watch Aurora's tape and do some of the similar things that Aurora does offensively with their schemes and whatnot, but are you going to get the same kinds of players or maybe the exact same kinds of preparation that Don Beebe brings to Aurora? I don't know. Certainly teams are going to look at this and attempt to emulate it. Why would you not? It's very successful. Can you completely recreate the Aurora experience at someplace in, you know, the, the UMAC or the MWC? I don't know if you can do that exactly. If you're looking for jobs that are open that you could hire NFL vets into, jobs open right now include Elmhurst, they include Otterbine, they include Southern Virginia. Southern Virginia had a NFL 
veteran head coach there. Edwin Mulatalo has been the head coach there since 2018. Um, that was a formula that did not work for the Knights. So it is not a automatic anything. Also not automatic this week was anything that we predicted might happen in the first round. At least that's how it seemed. How did it actually shake out, Greg? This week, our regular panel plus Keith McMillan drops back in for the playoffs. We put our takes on the shelf and cut right to the chase with score predictions for each game. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you know we had quite a few uh, surprising results. So our overall records are a little worse for wear. All of our panelists unanimously picked lacrosse, Whitewater, and Susquehanna to win. So we all lost at least three games. Ryan Tips leads the pack with 11 of 16 games picked correctly. Keith, Pat, Frank, Logan, and Riley, they're all just one game behind. They had 10 correct picks in the first round. I am currently in last place. I picked just nine of the 16 games correct, but I'm feeling very confident about the next round, Pat. Ryan seems to do pretty well in this year after year, right? I feel like I am often chasing him. I I am often chasing an extra point, I think, on uh, on Ryan Tips. Wheaton and Bethel, I think, is where you guys are different. Aha, yes. Ryan picked Bethel. I picked Wheaton in a not-close game for reasons I've already mentioned. One other thing before we go, sad news in Division Three football in that uh, Whittier College out of Southern California announced this past week that it was dropping football. I think it also dropped uh, lacrosse and golf. You're obviously very close to these things in Southern California. Whittier struggled mightily on the field over the course of the last several years. And Occidental dropped football. That was a team Whittier was beating. First off, I think that one of us should just go walk in there and take Myron Claxton's shoes. Neither of these programs should get to keep that trophy, if you ask me. The Myron Claxton Shoes Skyac Championship Trophy, the winner of the Skyac gets the shoes. Maybe, or I was just thinking maybe an Ocean's 2 kind of heist. You and I go uh, just raid the place. Mission Impossible style. Yeah, it's sad news for sure from Whittier, but they have been on a very long conference losing streak. And a lot of their games really not competitive. So, um, you know, you don't know what all of the administrative reasons are for decisions like this, but certainly... Whittier's on-field results have not been good for quite some time. I didn't get the sense that Whittier had a roster numbers issue. So um, this is something a little bit different than, than what we saw at Occidental. And this is going to impact the Skyac going forward. Now they don't, they're not going to lose their automatic bid now because the rules have changed. Six teams is enough to qualify for the pool a automatic bid, but Scheduling has been an issue for Skyac teams, and now one fewer conference opponent means one more non-conference game that these teams are going to have to schedule. We're probably not going to see the uh, the end of Skyac teams playing each other in September in non-conference games. Uh, we don't love that a whole lot, but budgets don't allow for these teams to travel all over into the Midwest multiple times a year. I found it very interesting that like the president of Linfield University made a mention on Twitter that that reacted favorably to some sort of merger between the Skyac and the Northwest Conference. I suppose that's not out of the realm of possibility as something that might happen just for football. There's already been kind of a loose, informal, some years formal scheduling arrangement, and you know maybe that will happen as well. Heck, how do we get an island super conference 
between what's left in the ASC in a few years, what's left in the SCIAC and the Northwest Conference. And that way, oh, this is good. That way, too, you can't make them play each other in the first round because they'll all be conference games. That's the kick in the head. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 321, released on November 21st of 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out on all of our postseason coverage. Have a great Thanksgiving, but come to us because we'll still have plenty of feature stories this week uh, as we get you ready for round two of the playoffs. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. And even if you can't afford to support us in a financial way, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, fellow alum, someone else who's in your parents' group of your particular Division Three football program. Tell them about this show. Tell them about the website. You can rate and review the show in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance this week provided by Dave McHugh, Frank Rossi, Damaro O'Malley, Parker Olson. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify, as well as right underneath what I'm talking about right now. Thanks to Chris Winter for joining us in this podcast. Thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com. That's Keith McMillan. And thank you. Thank you, Greg Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So round two games, are there any games where you feel like you have absolutely no idea how that game is going to turn out? Well, I think that Alma-Aurora game is a huge toss-up. And I think St. John's Warburg is uh, much more known quantities, but also... You know, similarly, I'm not sure how that game is going to come out. Trinity UMHB, Bethel Linfield, Randolph-Macon, Delaware Valley, which we kind of didn't talk about, and we kind of didn't talk about Mount Union Utica either. Like, could we see Adam Zinilovich come in and throw the ball all over the lot? I think here's the other thing. How many times did we say in this podcast that the weather had an effect on this game? Whether it was wind, whether it was snow, cold rain in Texas. I think aside from... The uh, Linfield Pomona Pitzer game. I'm not sure how many games were played in you know quality conditions. Not many. No. For I for me, Randolph Macon Delval. No earthly idea what's going to happen in that game. I have no feel for how those teams will react to playing against. Like Delaware Valley is going to play a team that is way better than anybody that they've seen this year, and this usually doesn't go well for them when this happens in the playoffs. True. And Randolph-Macon, they played somebody very good, but I don't know how they're going to react to Delaware Valley's uh, ridiculous defense. No idea how that's going to go. Well, we will tell you about it on D3Football.com. By the time you get to this, maybe you should just take this out. 